So as you can see, we have something from the 60s, something from the 2000s, something from the 70s. Little Cool in the Gang for you on Sunday morning. Little Meatloaf, a little Bruno Mars. <laughs> Cherish the love. Have you ever heard someone say they would kill for someone that they loved? And maybe in a movie or something, you know? Have you ever seen what true love can do to a person when it first hits? I mean, they act like total idiots. I mean, for me, when I first met my wife, I started obeying all the speed limits. It was crazy. I just, <laughs> insane. It's crazy what love can make some people go through, isn't it? I mean, there are a ton of songs about it, movies. I still don't get the notebook why that's so famous and popular, but still. Frankly, I can't think of someone doing more for what they loved than David did. So today we're going to look at David's story with his mistress turned wife that he stole, Bathsheba. Yes, it might have some things in it that seem like they come out of a soap opera, but it is what it is. <clears throat> it's the scripture. And so first thing I'll do is I'm going to read to you the first part of 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, in other words, his whole army, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained back in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch as he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was hot. <laughs> Doesn't say that, but... And, and the woman was beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he laid with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So first of all, David stays behind. Normally he should be out leading his battle, leading his troops, but he stays behind. But then he goes hunting. He does. He goes hunting, he goes out in his room, and he sco scopes out at the time when all the women would be bathing. And he finds this one chick, but then he commits adultery and gets her pregnant. So we're going to kind of fly through this, okay? Then the next part of the passage, let me read this. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, that's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go home, David said to him, have you not come from a long journey? Why did he not go to your house? See, he was trying to get him to lay with his wife. And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping out in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David's like, oh, come on, dude. So David says to Uriah, remember here today also 
Stay here, remind, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went down to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but Uriah did not go back to his house, even when he was drunk. So let's go through this. He attempts to corrupt Uriah. He brings Uriah home, and he wants Uriah, hey, here's the gold. Send me Uriah, I'm gonna ha and so it'll look like it's his kid. That's the goal here. I don't want people to know she's pregnant with my kid, so I'll send Uriah in. He tries to get Uriah to sin the same way he did, by being at home when he should be out in the battle, enjoying the ease of life, while his fellow warriors are out fighting the Lord's battles. So David has his sin, and he tries to get Uriah to commit the same sin. But somehow God enables Uriah to be righteous, and Uriah does not fall into the temptation that the king, the king is leading him into. Remember the psalm that David wrote, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? What a hypocrite. Now, the second time, he tries to impair Uriah's judgment. He tries to get him drunk so his faculties are compromised, hoping then he'll stumble home. You know, the total disdain that David displays for Uriah, for no good reason, I might add, is stunning to me. He wanted Uriah to fall in the same area that he had fallen so that he could cover up his own sin. I wonder if Uriah knew what was going on. I mean, Uriah had to know his wife was pretty good looking. He, knew, he probably knew it had to be strange. He would, me, I'm just a soldier. I'm just a Hittite. You would call me back? What the heck? And maybe he stayed away from home because he was hurt. I don't know. I'm speculating about all of this. But it's, but it's a fascinating development here. And Uriah does not go home. Maybe he was heartbroken. I don't think he was an idiot. I wonder if he suspected what had happened with his wife. And for this reason said, uh-uh, I'm not going back. I feel bad for him. What a tragic figure. And then the next part, I'm just going to go through quickly here. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And it's sealed, of course. In the letter he wrote, set, listen to this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then, when he's not suspecting it, draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were good fighters on the other side. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the soldiers of David fell in this fighting, this staged battle. And Uriah also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Do you not know that you would have shooting from the wall and you'd lose a bunch of soldiers? <clears throat> then you, Joab says, just remind him, oh, by the way, Uriah is also dead. If he gets mad, he starts talking smack, just remind him, your servant Uriah died. 
Joab's probably pretty disgusted right now, too, by this. David is sacrificing soldiers and a faithful servant. He's doing anything for love. So Joab carries out the plan that David hatches, this scheme, that they, this elaborate, creative thinking scheme that David, this dark, twisted concept. And then Joab sends back word to David, gives the messenger a postscript just in case David forgets why the battle was so hot and why there were other troops that died. And David's sin affects the lives of many people here. He probably created 15 to 20 widows that day, maybe more. Devastated children and wives. And it's funny because the very person that David a few chapters ago chastised for killing Abner, who was Saul's general, remember? Joab killed Abner, and David said, I can't believe you would do something like that. Why would you kill one of God's people? He uses that very same guy to pull off the same crap that he's doing now. But for even less honorable intentions. So let's look at the last part. <clears throat> so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell him. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Thus says David to the messenger, this is what you're going to tell Joab. Don't let this matter bother you. For the sword devours now one, and later on will devour another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And he says, I want you to encourage Joab with these words. And when the wife, of, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David gets word, and then he has this chilling response. Don't worry about it, Joab. It's war. Just go ahead and finish the job. Take the city. And David minimizes the loss of life that is a direct result of his sin and manipulation. Think of all the other wives that day that had to grieve because of the death, the needless death of their husbands. David's sin disrupted several families and placed them in a situation of sorrow and mourning. But in the end, David takes Bathsheba as his wife and his love scheme is completed. So let's go through some of the things he went through. He went through a lot of trouble to set this whole thing up, did he not? Let's count the ways he coddled his love. First of all, he stayed home when he shouldn't have. He scoped out all the women at the right time. He targeted Bathsheba, preyed upon her, sent for her, went through the whole seduction process, destroys her life. 
He hatches this elaborate scheme to murder Uriah and he destroys the lives of many other women and men and children. He must have really been in love to go through all this trouble, don't you think? I mean, he must have really been full of passion. I mean, he must have been driven to this mad, ridiculous behavior because he was so much in love. I submit to you that David was in deep, deep, head-over-heels love, but it was not with Bathsheba. I mean, really, how can you fall deep in love with a woman you just see naked bathing one time? No, what David fell in love with was the thing that kept him home in the first place. He was in love with his desire to commit adultery. His desire to fulfill his sinful lusts. He was so in love with his sin, he was willing to do anything necessary to provide the opportunity to find the right target and to cover it up. He sacrificed soldiers, for goodness sakes. So the question is, do you think it was okay for him to become a widow maker and a wife stealer? I mean, is love allowed to make you that crazy? Would you do anything for love? So... The question is, how romantic are you with your desires? How much trouble do we go through to foster, fulfill, and then conceal them? See, we adore our sin. We love it. We cherish it. We protect it. We set up structures, elaborate structures in our life that enable us to continue in it. How much of your time, your money, your emotions, your creative thought life, your planning, and your scheming do you use to protect your beloved desires? You want to hear a story about my sin? Your eyes are always up for that, aren't you? Right? When I was in Bible college, yes, I was a sinner in Bible college. I, took, I was coaching football at the time, and I was in full-time school, so I was kind of busy, but, you know, I needed to buy ramen noodles because my roommate kept stealing them, as I told you guys about last week. So I took a job as a vacuum cleaner demonstrator for Hoover Vacuum, right? So I'd be the guy who would sit in Costco or Sam's or Kmart or whatever, and I would set up a piece of carpet, and I would take some, you know, dirt and stuff, and I'd, sto and I'd show you how good it cleaned it up. It started off great, you know, because for some reason, I could sell vacuums. I had a great line. Hey, you should buy this vacuum. It really sucks. <laughs> good, yeah? People love that line. Oh, you know, and I bring them in, you know, this vacuum cleaner sucks. It does? No, man, it really sucks. Watch how good it sucks. It's a great line. It started off great. But there wasn't much accountability. You know, what would happen is I would show up, I would just fill out a timesheet, and I would turn it in. I would go to different stores and, and I would turn it into my boss. 
And my boss was one of the kids on the team that I coached football with. His dad, it was his dad, it was one of the kids, his dad. And so, but I was tired. I liked being at home after a long day of school and coaching. So I started fudging my timesheet a little bit. Fudging how many vacuum cleaners I sold. If I sold five, I put six on there. If I stole, if I, I didn't steal any, I promise. If I sold four, I'd put five. And then I'd start saying I came in at 10 when I really came in at 11. I'd say I left at four when I left at three. And after about a month, I stopped going altogether. But I loved getting that paycheck because I needed it. But I was tired after a day of school. And I'm coaching kids. I'm making a difference in their life. I also love going home and resting. So one day, my best friend, who was the head coach of this team, and my mentor, we were roommates, he said, Joe, we got a problem on the football team. I said, what's going on? He says, we got this kid. <clears throat> and he names the kid. And he says, uh, he wants to keep starting. But he says he's not coming to practice anymore. And I was angry. I said, I don't care how good he is, Dave. We got we to gotta cut this kid. He cannot not come to practice and not play. My, my, my roommate was a godly man, and he knew the scripture. And he pulled this right from the Bible, right? I didn't recognize it. I was angry. We got to cut him. I don't care who he is. I don't care how good he is. He can't just not come to practice and expect us to start him. My friend said, Joe, that's exactly what you're doing to the Hoover Vacuum Company. Uh-oh. So I'm going to tell you the rest of the story next week of how it ends. <laughs> you guys have a lower opinion of me now? I was only 19. Come on. Let me read this for you from my journal from 1999. This whole application has me really uncomfortable. I never thought about how much trouble I go through in my life because of how much I love my sinful desires. When I compare it to how much trouble I go through for the things that a man of God should love, it takes me to a new reality about my heart that, frankly, I don't want to think about very much. Maybe I should stop this study and do one on Psalms or something. <laughs> it was uncomfortable for me, you know? See, now that we've discussed David's love life, as we sit here in disgust of what he did, or maybe you're just disgusted with me in my brief career as a vacuum cleaner salesman, let's stop now and let's take an account of how much we love our sin, at what lengths we will go to currently to protect our opportunities, to try to minimize our costs, to minimize our consequences, or maybe even shift our consequences to someone else. The treasure we spend, the time we spend, the creative thought energy that we spend, the emotion that we spend as a percentage, just how expensive is our love affair with our desires? Some of you in here have risked, risked the lives of others. Some of you in here 
to foster your desire for your sin, be it an addiction or whatever it is, you've risked your own life. That's pretty high cost. It's even worse when you risk someone else's life. Some of us have gambled with our relationships, the ones that really matter. Some of us have or do gamble with the lives of others. Some of us have or do gamble with our future financial situation. Some of us in here have or do gamble with our reputation. And some of us, at times, are living on the very edge of absolute, total shame and embarrassment if our scheme were made public. Today, what would happen if all the secret things that you do to foster your love affair with your desires, your temptations, your addictions, and, and all those things, if all those elaborate schemes were revealed, how many people would be hurt? How many people would be devastated? How shameful would you be? How much is the actual cost? There's an old saying that says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will make you stay longer than you want to stay, and sin will cost you more than you want to pay. But somehow, we feel like we are, we are the Einsteins of sin, we think. There's no way somebody's going to catch me doing this. I figured it all out. I'll just kill Uriah. And I'll look like the hero because I've taken on his widow. And people will think, wow, look at this king. This soldier dies, his wife is a widow, and he makes her his wife. Wow. That way I get to sin and look like a hero. I bet you're not as good as David. And so, as we kind of close out this morning, what I want to do is I want to ask you a question. And we are purposely going to be leaving this a little bit dark for you today because this is Lesson 21A. Next week is Lesson 21B. And if you don't come back next week and you're here this week, you're going to feel terrible the rest of your life. So, <laughs> you have to come back. But my hope is that as we leave this morning and we get ready to kind of go out, I'm purposely not trying to leave you encouraged. I want to leave you inspecting yourself. Look at yourself and ask, how much am I in love with my desires or my temptations? And how much am I spending? What am I willing to do? Am I willing to take a grenade for it? Am I willing to kill for it? Am I willing to sacrifice the relationships with people that I truly love for it? How in love are you? There really isn't like Joseph. There's no songs that we could sing. So we want to give you just a few minutes before we um, let you go home today. We're going to take a time to pray together as a congregation, just to sit. We started with prayer together. We will end with prayer together this morning. God, thank you. 
thank you for giving someone uh, the words to speak truth into our lives, especially when maybe we are talking about our sin. Because I don't think probably something that we don't like to think about a lot unless if somebody brings it up to us, right? So Lord, you see our hearts. You know what we God, because um, you provide all the strength that we need, because there's nothing that we do that you can't work through and that you can't use for your glory. as we leave this place today we thank you again for the chance to encourage you to look at our hearts bring us back together next week Lord um, ready to learn more and we thank you for your son who was who is and who is to come amen please stand as I dismiss you this morning, um, go knowing that there is no place that you will ever go where the grace of God has not already prepared a way for you. Blessings. We will see you next week.